0: i've been telling you it's nothing like it seems it's what i've been telling you I was uh, growing up, grew up in church, a little small church in northern Ontario, Canada. One of the things this church always did every year was the annual church picnic. Did you have a church picnic? If you grew up in church, was that something? Every year, our church would rent a pavilion, buy some water, and there'd be a big open field where you could play, you could go swimming. There was a little playground there. And of course, you know, this is the 70s and 80s, so it wasn't a safe playground. It was all those metal, jagged edges that we grew up on. And you kind of wonder, how on earth did we survive that era? And uh, we played all sorts of games. They had all sorts of contests. They had, you know, the standard stuff. They had uh, the three-legged race. They had the, you know, the, the 50-meter dash, so to speak. They had the uh, uh, wheelbarrow races. And uh, one of my favorites was the tug of war. Did you play tug of war when you were a kid? How, what are the rules for tug of war? Do you know how, they, how it works? Do you know how it works? You divide into two teams, Right? and one team stands on one side and the other team stands on the other side and you put a line sort of in the center on the ground And maybe you put a a flag somewhere on the rope near both teams. And the idea is that you will tug and try and pull the other team to your side. And and as soon as that flag from their side kind of crosses the middle line on the ground or the stake in the ground, that's the winner. And so you would try to stack your team as much as possible with the strongest people or just with the heaviest people you could find because, you know... uh, If you're an immovable object, that also works. And so we would play tug-of-war. I loved uh, the tug-of-war games. And the thing is about families, some of them, some families also play tug-of-war as well. The idea that in my family, I have to win and I have to pull you over to my side. I have to get you to come over to my side. I have to get you to win. And maybe there's a, a spouse that is like, no, I, I want you to come over to my side. Or the kids are pulling tug of war against the parents and the parents are against the kids. Or it's in-laws, in-laws are trying to pull which way or the other. And it's, some families have tug of war, this this pull, I need to get you to come over to my side. And as we continue in our series today called Picture Perfect Family, we're going to talk about that, that tug of war, that family conflict that every family has. You know that family conflict is inevitable, right? Say amen. Amen. You know this. You know this because you grew up in a family. And that family that you had, had conflict in it. But while it's inevitable, the way to fight as a family does not have to include a tug-of-war. This idea of a picture-perfect family, I think that's possible. I think that's possible. It's not to say that you've always been perfect, but you are progressing towards the perfect family that God has in mind for you. I think that's possible, and you need to learn what to do. I need to learn what to do with family conflict. What do we do to fight well? It's not that we can avoid it. It's how do we fight well, and by that I mean How do we fight so everyone wins? How do we do that? I think there's a way. Just like our metaphor from last week that not every photo that we take of our families is a perfect photo. There are some photos that are perfect and you wouldn't change a thing about them. They turn out just exactly the way that you hoped they would. I think God, in His wisdom, gives every family a formula on how to have a perfect family. Or rather, I think he can help develop a perfect family. I think he can help develop a picture-perfect family. See what I did there? I'll wait. Develop a picture-perfect I think you have to be old enough to know what developing a picture is. So let's move on. That's enough to start a fight. That dad joke right there, isn't it? it sure was. Last week, we learned how to forge our family's best future. One that is built on faith. And we kind of watched that in the video this morning uh, about uh, this couple that's going to uh, uh, Thailand. Thailand. And uh, that's going to be celebrated at General Council this year. I'm just so excited about that. But we talked about what it means to, in faith, put our families into the hands of God. And when we do that, we gain not only the best possible experience for our family, but for generations to come and for all eternity. This week... I want to talk about how to fight well as a family. I want to talk about how everyone can win when you experience family conflict. I want to talk about a one-size-fits-all solution that works for any family, even families that experience conflict. So how do we do that? Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me in them to Ephesians chapter 4. It's Ephesians chapter 4 that we get this picture of how do we win when we experience family conflict. And not just us winning, but everyone winning. It's in Ephesians chapter 4 starting at the 17th verse that we read these amazing words. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they are full of, what's the word? Greed. That, however, is not the way of life. and holiness. So how do we win when our family fights? How can everyone win? Well, the answer is actually really simple. Be more like God. The end. Thanks for coming today. So glad you could join us. Have a great rest of your Sunday and we'll see you next week. The interesting thing about this passage is that it seems like there's just a blanket statement of you should do better but so let's unpack this a little bit what paul is saying here to this ephesian church that had this just incredible polytheistic society right where the christians there were wondering i i should give jesus a place somewhere a spot on my shelf among all of the other gods that are on my shelf what's the place that jesus should have i need to give him a spot where paul is saying forget that Look at all the things that you did when you, when you didn't have Jesus, when you don't live for Jesus. Instead of putting Jesus in a spot, put him in the center. Give him everything because he's given you everything. And the first three chapters, unpack this so brilliantly, I encourage you to read them this afternoon. But what Paul says here is so important for us to recognize. We are looking for fulfillment in life, and we can't trust our own desires. We are looking for, this is something that we think will satisfy, but it turns out that it won't. It won't give us what we want. Our desires deceive us, which is why he calls them deceitful desires. And it's Jesus who points us to what we need, The truth that our desires won't give us what satisfies. So be made new in our attitudes. Adopt the attitudes of God towards others. Be like Him in righteousness and holiness. Forget the old self. Put on the new self. And if you've grown up in church, you know that metaphor well. It's like taking off old clothes that don't fit. We were actually talking a little bit before service today about how it's amazing that the pandemic seems to have shrunk everyone's clothes. We didn't do any more, except the clothing all seemed to shrink universally for all people, right? Right? So you don't wear the stuff that doesn't fit anymore. You wear the new things. You don't wear the things that are faded out and and have holes everywhere, unless it's a style thing and you paid 200 bucks for those holes and that faded thing. At that point, you wear them, but that's when it's new. You wear the new things. You put away the old things. I think that's kind of confusing for us, so I always like to talk about glasses. Lots of people wear glasses. I can't see anything without my glasses. As a matter of fact, every year... I love going and getting my vision checked because every year I am amazed at how used to seeing I was with my old glasses, and then they start to fiddle with some lenses, and you know, is this better or worse, one, two, and all those things. They order new glasses for me, different prescription, and I put them on, and I can see so much more clearly than I could with the old pair. The old pair was okay. But the new ones are so much better to bring things into focus. And Paul is saying that. Jesus is giving us a new focus. He's offering to renew our minds, renew our ambitions, renew our desires, because we can't trust ours. We live, well, we live in a way that produces what we want. And that's what creates conflict in families when we live for what we want. So he says, replace those ambitions. Look to God. Look to his righteousness and look to his holiness. But can I just be honest? I mean, I get that. I get that this is God's word and I'm not uh, trying to, you know, lower your impression of what God has said here. But doesn't that sound a little snake oily to you? Like, here's this universal, I'll oh, just be more like God. And I actually think that's a huge problem with a lot of churches these days. I think that one of the things that's really easy to do is just yell at people to do better. Just be better. You know, you got problems in your life? Be better. Just do better. Be like God. Be like Jesus. The only thing that's missing from that sermon is, now get out. <laughs> It's not helpful. It's not practical in any way. How do you be more righteous and how do you be more holy in your attitudes like God is? Well, if we stop there, then we miss how Paul applies that. How do, how can we live like God? Righteous and holy in our attitudes. How can we live like God towards our families? We're going to unpack the rest of this this morning, and it's going to be some really practical things that you and I can put into place today that will begin to shift what happens when your family faces conflict, when your family fights. Let's take a look at the first way this shows up in real, bottom-line kind of living. Take a look at verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Do you see it? You see how these things relate? There's this pursuit of truth versus falsehood. And which one do you think causes conflict? Both, to be honest. Because Every person has an instinct to protect and promote what they want. And we have an instinct that will say, we will fight for it, we will lie for it, we will cheat for it in order to make sure that we win. So Paul says, pursue truth. And what I think he's trying to tell us with that is, seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Seek to understand before seeking to be understood. I think that's the first way God's righteousness and holiness shows up in our lives, and in our families. We seek to understand where our family members are at, where our kids are at, where our parents are at, where our spouses are at. What are they feeling? What are they thinking? I want to make sure I have the information correct. I want to make sure I'm speaking from the truth, even if the truth is hard to hear. I mean, let's face it. Every family faces conflict on this level. Have you ever thought, well, I've got to stand up and protect my point of view here. I've got to fight for this. So that your family comes to you and says, how is it that you think you're always right? Have you ever had someone in your family tell you that? Probably not. That's probably other families have told you, you know, why do you always act like you're right? Don't sin in anger, he says. Have you ever had an argument with your spouse Your kids, your parents, as kids or adults? Have you ever said something that you've regretted? You ever do something that you've regretted? Have you ever said or did something that one of your family members never lets you forget? You ever hold on to anger? Because of what someone has said or someone has done to you. We all have. We've all felt that. We've all wanted to push against that, or we've just wanted to walk away from that, and we just shut right down. And both of those things are based on falsehood and anger and protectionism. I have to protect what's mine, I have to get what's mine, I have to fight for what's mine. That's the tug of war. And the solution, Paul says, seek to understand. Seek to understand what your family's saying. Seek to understand what your family's doing before seeking to be understood. And do you know what? This is hard. Seeking understanding is hard. Recently, uh, since last year, and just recently for... uh, uh, social media companies, Twitter and Facebook have begun rolling out and testing a, a new uh, a trigger, a warning for people who share articles on their social media feed. They're testing because what they've discovered and what they've seen is that people are willing to share something where they've only read the headline and they haven't read the article. They haven't watched the video. They haven't dove into the research. They've just, they're just sharing it on their page because of what the headline says. Twitter's been testing this since last summer on Android phones. They rolled it out in the fall to iOS phones. And Facebook is now thinking of doing the same thing, which is interesting. And that means that people are willing to look at a headline and go, ha-ha! perfect. That backs up my point of view. I'm going to post this so that all of my friends see this. So, it's interesting to try to figure out, well, wait, why are Facebook and Twitter doing this? What research have they discovered that this is the case? How do they know whether you've read the article or not? Well, here's what they've discovered. In 2016, a study was done at Columbia University and the French National Institute where 59% of Twitter links were shared without a click. So someone shared it on their Twitter feed, and it had, a, you know, it had a little headline at the bottom, and someone would retweet it automatically, which means that the only thing that they had a chance to read was the headline. And you know headlines, right? They're clickbait. They're meant to make you click the article. They're meant to make you look at it. But... People aren't doing that, almost 60%, 6 out of 10 people. Never read the article, they just shared the data. Data. And the study that they did in 2016 was inspired by a news satire website. Satire being nothing that they do is actually true, it's just based on cultural comedy. They, they did a science post. Uh, it was inspired by a, the science post satire website. Uh, that posted the headline that said, Study. 70% of Facebook users read, read the head, only read the headline of science stories before commentating. And, if you actually clicked on that link, it took you to a page that had placeholder text in the wording. So the ipsum lorem factum that you often see on placeholder frames, that's all it said on the website. It just had the headline, and then it just repeated a whole bunch of Latin phrases and placeholder text that didn't make any sense. And according to the Washington Post, that article, article, that with the headline, 70% of users only read the headline of science stories before commenting, got 46,000 shares. <laughs> 46,000 shares with no basis, no research behind it at all. It led to a dummy website. And in 2019, this was verified again. Annie Renault wrote a story about domestic terrorism for uh, the publication called Upworthy. But a glitch made the Facebook lit post go to a dead link. Even though it went to a page that no one could read, it racked up thousands of shares and 2,000-plus comments on the Facebook post alone. Even though people had not and could not read the article at all behind the headline. And we fall for this, and we do it all the time. Why? Because we're looking for ammo in our guns to win our arguments rather than seeking to understand why someone would hold that point of view and making sure we understand why they hold that point of view. You see, even if you're right, and even if someone in your family is wrong, may I suggest to you that being right and wrong is not the point. May I suggest that being right or being wrong is not the point. It's applying truth, not knowing truth, that makes a difference, right? James would tell this to Christians. He would say, faith without works is dead. You show me your faith by what you believe, and I will show you my faith by what I do, right? It's not just about winning arguments, and that goes for the family as well. Make sure you understand why they believe what they believe, that you understand what they believe and what they've researched to come to that conclusion before you share where they need to get to, what they need to do to apply truth in their lives. So making sure you understand your family is the first step about how to be like God to your family. Making sure you understand them before they understand you matters. But that's not all. Not only do we seek to understand before we seek to be understood, there's a second thing that Paul says we need to do if we're going to be like God in His righteousness and holiness in the way that we live with our family, in the way that we fight and deal with conflict in our families. He says this in verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving one another. Just as in Christ God forgave you. Build up your family rather than tear down your family. Contribute. Stop stealing from them. Stop stealing their time. Stop stealing their attention. Stop focusing on what can I gain without hardly any contribution from my family. And instead, contribute to your family. Speak wholesome to your family versus unwholesome to your family. Speak wholesome about your family to others who aren't part of your family. Like, can we just lose the? Well, I got to ask the old ball and chain first before I do that. <laughs> oh, you know, my husband, he's just an idiot at home, can't do anything. <laughs> I don't know why the woman sounded like the man there, but she did. <laughs> Let's talk wholesome about our families. Don't hold grudges against your family. Because the Holy Spirit is working on them, just like He's working on you. Stop fighting with them. Start fighting for them. Stop fighting with your family. Stop the tug of war and start fighting for your family. Be kind. Be compassionate. Being kind and compassionate, that's free. Seek to lift them up before you push yourself up. Now, truth be told, I'm still learning this on a massive level. I don't do this well at all. If my uh, son were to be fully honest, he would probably tell me that, Dad, you could probably be a little more kind sometimes in the way you communicate things. (laughs) That's probably true. And then I tell him to go to his room. No, we don't don't do this. We want to know our families for us. And God says, flip that script. Let your family know that you're for them. No matter where they are in faith, no matter where they are in the walk with Jesus, if they have a walk with Jesus, you're for them. I remember Krista once told me, you know, you've really softened, and I went, no, not like that, she said. She said, the way you communicate and the way that you treat us, it has a lot more grace, it's a lot more tender. To which, of course, I said, you shut up! <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't do that. Let your family know. You're for them. Build them up rather than tear them down. I think one of the ways this works is that you can kind of use the fridge art mentality. You know what fridge art is, right? Fridge art is reserved, it's a place on your fridge that was reserved for the kids when they bring home a piece of art that, let's be honest, it may not be very good at all, right? But it goes up onto the fridge because it's their art. And you're proud of that, and you want them to know to try to continue to be creative. What if every family member had the ability to put another family member on the fridge like that? Something they've done, an accomplishment that they've had. I remember, uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, we were advertising a live class that we were going to have a watch party for here at the church called Parenting in the Digital Age. One of the things that they recommended was that because kids use technology differently than us, we have to understand how to leverage the way they use technology. Kids want to just see what the technology will do. Parents buy technology because they know what it can do already. And they don't need more than that. We don't need bells and whistles and frills. And we just like, nope, I bought it for this because it solves that. Kids are like, oh, wow, look at this. And I want to just figure it out and play. And eventually, as they click and consume and try and experiment... They run into sites and websites and things online that you go, hey, wait, that's off limits. And the normal response of parents is to just take that technology away in spite of the fact that they really like the technology. And what we learned in the training was that's because you're focusing on the fact that all they do is consume technology. But what if, as a parent, you were to flip that and say, I'm not going to remove it because you're watching it too much, I'm going to encourage you to create with it. So if they watch a lot of YouTube videos, help them make YouTube videos. Help them curate a list of here's the helpful things I've seen on the things that I'm interested in. You know what? That really validated my parenting when I heard that statement because that's exactly, yeah, let's do this together. Let's learn together. Let me encourage you that you get to do this. Try this. Go out and do that. I'm proud of you for doing that. See, sometimes I think, after kids get older, or sometimes not at all, we only reserve the fridge art for the Picassos that they bring home, the things that we want them to do well. We reserve it for the report cards. But we don't reserve it for the the other things that they bring in. And sometimes, some families are so broken, they mostly communicate things like, you'll never do anything right. And they do it to their spouse, they share it to their kids, they talk about their parents or their in-laws saying, oh, they're just like that all the time. What if that shifted, where instead of saying, you'll never do anything right, you start saying, you're making great improvements. And lose the, you're always like this type of language. And just please recognize that when I point saying that, I'm actually just pointing at myself. Because this is something I need to do better. It's not wrong to want your family to change and grow. And you don't want to ignore the pain points in your family. If you've got to discipline your kids, if there's a need to discipline your kids because they've crossed boundaries that you've set, then discipline your kids. If you need to have a, honey, this is hard to say, but I need to say it, have that conversation. If you need to have those moments with your parents, mom, dad, I respect you, but this is something that I'm, I'm challenged with and I'm frustrated with and I'm feeling. Can we talk about that? Have that conversation. Have that moment where you share those things. Because... It's not about changing your family. It's about growing together as a family. It's recognizing that the Holy Spirit has a plan to change not only your family, but you as well. No one is beyond the need for change, so do it together. So Paul says, be in the construction business rather than the demolition business. When it comes to your family, build them up rather than tear them down. He says those two things. Seek to understand before seeking to be understood. And build up your family rather than tear down your family. You focus on those two things and God's righteousness and holiness begins to penetrate into your family through you. And your lives start to change to be the way you hope them would be with your family. Now, without any form of self-promotion in, in this, I want to give you kind of a metaphor as how I think you can begin to put this into practice today because I said we were going to do that, right? It's going to be practical. Can I just suggest that you put on a hat when it comes to your family? Don't just be mom, dad, son, daughter, or in-law, parent, whatever, Grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, what if you were pastor? What if you were their minister? Let's think about that. What does a minister want to do? Develop people, shepherd people, help them to develop a relationship with God. Doesn't mean you get rid of the other hats. I'm just suggesting put on this other one as well. View what you have the opportunity to do through that lens, through the lens of, I am going to minister to my family. I'm going to minister to my husband. I'm going to minister to my wife. I am going to minister to my kids. I'm going to minister to my parents. I'm going to minister to my in-laws. I'm going to minister to my relatives. When you do that, as a minister, what you recognize is that conflict is not the absence of ministry. It's not a distraction to ministry. Conflict is ministry. In other words, you recognize that conflict, the fighting in your family, is an opportunity, not a distraction. And it's an opportunity for you to see where people are really at, what they're mostly interested in, and how you can help them grow. It's an opportunity to grow. And this is how you put that into practice. This is the one-size-fits-all solution. This is where it starts. You can say this to anyone in your family, whether you're a child, talking to your parents, whether you are an adult, Talking to your senior parents, whether you're talking to your brothers or sisters, or whether you're a parent talking to your kids, or whether you're a husband talking to a wife, wife talking to a husband, whatever. This works every time. And here's all you need to say. You can put this into practice today How can I help? How can I help? I see you're doing whatever you're doing. How can I help? I see you're having a hard day. How can I help? I see this has gone really, really well. How can I help? It works in goods and bad situations. And, and let me tell you, if, if you're younger, if you're a teenager, if you're a college student watching this online or, or joining us today, and you're, you're getting this, and you ask your parents, how can I help? You will blow their minds. You will be like, Who are you and what did you do to my kid? Type of a response. It will overwhelm them. It will create such a relational dynamic. Couples, this will make your marriage better. How can I help? As the first response. Powerful. Make serving the solution. Step up and serve your family. Serve them, and serve them well. You can shoulder the load of life together. Because when it comes to the rope that we're given with our family, it's not a tug of war. Instead, it can be something that they can grab And hold on to. And you can help be an anchor. For them. For whatever it is. They are experiencing. Some questions for you as we close. You'll be discussing them in your groups this week. Most likely. Or you can talk about them on the uh, way home. Or at lunch. First question is this. What has helped you understand your family better? What has helped you understand what they're feeling, what they're thinking? What has helped you understand your family better? And secondly, how can you build up your family this week? By serving them. The rope is not a tug of war. It's not meant for that. It's a lifeline. It's a way to bring your family, tie them more, knit them more closely together. So be someone that your family doesn't try to pull you away from. Be someone that your family doesn't pull away from. And be someone that they can hold on to. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for our families. We thank you for the people in our families, our moms, our dads, our kids, our spouses. We thank you because they are opportunities to become perfect. They are opportunities to to grow. They're opportunities to work through conflict in a way that builds people up, that helps us understand them. They are opportunities to minister to them in the same way that you minister to us. Lord, when we look at a passage like this, we think this is such an individualistic thing, but this is how it gets practically lived out where we are at our homes by putting off the old self, the selfish one. Putting on the new self where we seek to understand before being understood and where we build up our families rather than tear them down. We start to get that picture-perfect family that you want us to have. And you will be right there in the middle of that as your holiness, as your righteousness is developed and refined and evidenced in us. So, Lord, would you... Give us the commitment to do these things. Would you help us to start with just four words? How can I help? Would you help us to do that, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.